Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, first, a poem about a bird, wet leaves, the taste of morning, and a place where time moves slower than the rest of the world. My name is Georgina Marie, and I am the Poet Laureate of Lake County, California, 2020 to 2024. And this is my poem, Eye on the Sparrow. I woke to rapid flapping, the air cold, the time unknown, the dog's paws tapping on chill hardwood floor, sudden commotion. Jumping to corral what was assumed to be an animal fight, I find a California towie in my dining room, frantic frightened, brisk movement in her wings, making the room that much more frigid. I stammer to her, follow her room to room as she attempts to fly her way out of walls until she finally calms, allowing me to cup her into my hands. We sit together outside on a frosty concrete step, my bare feet settling on top of wet fall leaves, gathering the taste of morning in my mouth the scent of rain and dirt. She catches her breath. My thumb softly wrapped around her chest, feeling her heart rate regulating, her eyes opening, her fear receding. Leaves rustle, wind and traffic move along while she and I watch each other in a place where time moves slower than the rest of the world. Her eyelids the color of peach and terracotta her body the rusty hue of autumn, her eyes the same shade as mine, dark as loam. I flatten my hand, she doesn't move. We sit together for what seems like hours, what seems like fate when safety is reciprocated. 10 minutes later, she flies, stops on a dog-eared picket and looks back. The dog quietly watches me, how I love and let go all at once. Thank you for listening, dear poet. And thank you, Georgina Marie Guardado and the Academy of American Poets. And next on Arts Express. And yet, the emperor of the sidewalk doesn't go home when you do. Instead, he stares down the night in a shelter or a park while darkness dances in his eyes and strives to swallow up his heart. And pointed patterns of his past weave textured tapestries of home, sweet smells of wondrous meals, caressing comfort of his own bed. No, because the emperor of the sidewalk's true kingdom is only mapped out in his head. That was terrific, Tommy. Thank you for sharing some of your poems with us. Thanks for having me. All right, everyone. And that was a scene from Ghost Rider, an actor David Patrick Kelly in a classroom scene reading a very personal poem about homelessness, The Emperor of the Sidewalk. And Kelly is our guest this week in the second of a two-part conversation, the first about the veteran actor's current starring role in Adieu la Khan, in which he reenacts the final years and work of the controversial and eccentric acclaimed 20th century post-Freudian French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan. And on this week's show, Kelly talks about his current role in the production in progress, Night Music, in which he portrays one half of that father and son duo, the iconic musicologist and folklorist John Lomax. 
along with other real-life people he's played on stage and screen, Dali, Joyce, Truman, and John Lennon, with whom the musician as well as actor also performed with back then. First, a scene from Night Music, as father and son managed to infiltrate Louisiana State Penitentiary, also known as the Angola Plantation, to surreptitiously record a chain gang work song, then David Patrick Kelly. We'll put something on that machine. Well, it's early in the morning, in the morning. Oh, baby, when I rise. Well, well it's early in the, morning, in the morning, baby, when I rise. Prairie. Hello and welcome to our show. Well, thank you very much. Very nice to be here. I'm honored. <laughs> okay. Now you're no stranger to playing real people. Photographer Ansel Adams in A Marriage, Truman in Flags of Our Fathers, and you're coming up in Night Music as pioneering folklorist John Lomax, and you're a musician yourself. So what inspired you to portray Lomax in that movie? Well, Lomax is the father of all the music. You know, I was born in 51, and the rock and roll revolution, if you want to call it that, you know, the, the, that addition to our culture and all the things that that brought, you know, um, came essentially, I think, from Alan Lomax and some of the musicologists who had collected these records and seen this encyclopedic world of uh, culture, you know, um, I'm a mandolin player, so uh, I always see it through the lens of Bill Monroe and what he did, his revolutionary, uh, you know, combination of blues and and old Celtic and English folk songs, you know, which became bluegrass. You know, that was that's what he, you know, was the founding father of, you know, and uh, and uh, so that kind of mix you know, uh, brought me to those recordings. I had listened to those recordings for years, you know, his his prison recordings, you know, you can take that, the stuff that's on those prison recordings goes right into rap music today. You can hear it, you know, absolutely, you know, and, uh, um, and, uh, and the wealth of, of, of stuff that's on the Lomax recordings and the Library of Congress recordings uh, is fascinating. It's very effective as it is, and the great Michael Potts is in it, you know, uh, playing one of the prisoners uh, that that Lomax records. Uh, so I'm hoping that it'll go on and be made into a larger film. Of course, there was a, a famous anthology by Harry Smith, you know, uh, that that influenced Bob Dylan and all the folk rockers of the 50s and 60s, Pete Seeger and and on and on, you know, listening to those and translating and doing their own versions of the recordings uh, of the the music that was on Harry Smith's anthology, you know. Mm. Harry Smith is a whole other story. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I played him, too. I, I played Harry Smith, too. Oh, when was that? Uh, it, it's a, it was a workshop of a, of, of a play, <laughs> and I'm going to block in his name, uh, um, but... Uh, it, you know, it's a workshop of his life at the, at the uh, 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 what's the hotel? Chelsea Hotel. Mm. You know, he lived there. And, uh, you know, so uh, um, so it's one of the other people. John Lennon is another one I played. Salvador Dali I played. And Dali, you know, thinking about Lacan's uh, also, he was, he was related to Joyce in a big way, and he was related to uh, the, the Surrealists, you know, uh, uh, because Lacan was a, a post-Freudian Freudian, you know, he he respected greatly what Freud did, and then he moved on from it, you know, kind of in the same way that uh, Carol Gilligan talks about in her book, In a Different Voice, you know, she she's looking for a new model, you know, post-Freudian model, you know, uh, um, that's uh, different than, than the kind of 
limited reading of Greek, uh, well, I don't know if you could call it limited reading, but his, his use of the Greek uh, family structure to uh, as a basis for Freud's uh, psychoanalysis. And Carol Gillen takes it to a, a whole new realm. And when did you play Lenin and Dali? Well, uh, in 1982, there was a, an import from the Everyman Theater in Liverpool, which was two years after John Lennon died. And I met John Lennon uh, briefly. Uh, we did a version of Sgt. Pepper. It was kind of a sung-through <laughs> concert version at the Beacon <laughs> Theater in 1974. And both John Lennon and... Um, Paul McCartney came to that, and so I was fortunate to meet them. And he was just as you imagine; it was like a, a dream meeting him. Such so funny and generous, you know. And uh, and uh, he had written an interview with himself in Interview Magazine, uh, early version of Warhol's magazine interview. Uh, and it was Dr. Winston O'Boogie interviews John Lennon, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, and so I congratulated him on that, you know. I said. Nice interview with yourself. And he said, yes, I asked myself some very pertinent questions. You know? <laughs> so uh, that was a thrill. And uh, and Harry Truman was also fascinating. He was still president when I was born in 1951. And so uh, um, our, our uh, Congress lady, uh, Carol, Carolyn, uh, what's her name, Carolyn, uh, she got me into the White House. She got me a pass into uh, into the White House, and I went and visited. I saw the piano that Harry Truman played uh, Paderewski on for the Kennedys, and uh, and that informed my my one scene for Clint Eastwood and Flags of Our Fathers, you know. <laughs> and uh, so playing real people has been a delight for me. Now Dali uh, was a play playwrights horizon, and and uh, you know I. It was a wonderful time uh, researching his life and, and and what he was about and how they they read uh, Freud to you know uh, civilization and its discontents was a big big one for them the surrealists and uh, that sort of created ushered in surrealism you know as as a way to open up the unconscious and mm. and. Uh, um, you know, so that's what I learned from from that. You know, and mm. and, and and his relation to uh, Lacan uh, was great. You know, because that's what Lacan was trying to do as well. You know, trying to say it's it's not just one thing, one interpretation. There's not just one solution to people's problems. You know, it's it's open and and basically you have to lead yourself to where you're going to to understand your problems. Mm. And how would you compare and contrast being directed by, say, Walter Hill in 48 Hours and the Warriors with David Lynch for Twin Peaks and Wild at Heart? Well, Walter Hill always says his, his movies are like Westerns, you know, and uh, and I see that. I, I've called him before the postmodern John Ford because he's done a whole range of things, you know, and, and you know, uh, for me, his masterpiece is Geronimo. I, I love his movie about Geronimo and uh, a great tragedy that happened here in the U.S. and uh, starring the great honorary Oscar winner, Wes Studi. Uh, that's mm-hmm. that's Walters. But I'm also very fond of an action movie with Bruce Willis that I did called Last Man Standing. Uh, it has a fantastic score by Ry Cooter and the great cinematography, and it deals with a a time that, even though it's fictional, it's it's loosely based on Dashiell Hammett's Red Harvest, and uh, and uh, it, and uh, Walter had me read Studs Lonigan by Charles T. Farrell, you know, which is about uh, Irish gangsters in Chicago, but there must have been a time during the the bootleg era, uh, prohibition when there were gangsters sitting on the border towns, you know, getting the booze coming in across the border. And it was a fascinating thing, you know. And so that's where the melting pot really melted in the USA, you know. And so the battle for his his war bride, as you would 
probably inappropriately call them uh, these days, you know, in that movie, um, was a fascinating story for me. The early days of, of the USA, you know, Christopher Walken had an Irish accent, you know, and played my second in command. And mm. I was someone who was proud of being uh, assimilated and had done away with his Irish accent, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's all stuff that's just behind the scenes in this movie. But uh, it, it, it's it's great. It, it, it really has some wonderful things in it, you know. And, you know, I've been fortunate to receive, I don't, you know, reviews. I love critics, you know. The great critics are really great. I carried James Agee's book, uh, about movies was my film school. Mm. And when I first arrived in New York, I carried James Agee's book of film criticism around and tried to see everything that he wrote about favorably in there. So um, great critics are great, and I've been fortunate to get two good reviews for Walter Hill's film. Pauline Kael rescued that movie because mm. it was controversial because there were events that happened at the movie. And she wrote a rave review in The New Yorker one of her long, long reviews and, and gave me a good mention. And I'd been a student of hers reading her books in, in high school, you know. And um, and then, much later, for Last Man Standing, Andrew Saris, the legendary creator of, uh, you know, the, the uh, artist uh, uh, school of, of cinema, uh, you know, he wrote in, in the, the Observer, about Last Man Standing and finally understood Walter Hill from that movie. Mm. You know, even though it looks like just to shoot him up, it is not. There's much richer content in there. Mm. And uh, that comes out in, you asked me about David Lynch, you know, and I think, uh, you know, where Walter Hill is John Ford, David is uh, Hitchcock, mm. you know, and, and some of the European filmmakers, you know. Uh, that's the world that he lives in for me, you know. And uh, and he goes right back to the surrealists again because David is quite surreal and I think of him as a painter. You know, he's like a his his movies are like living paintings. You know, he makes them by uh, collecting a whole bunch of images that he's come up with. He just thinks of a hundred images and then he starts making a movie. You know, his original. Mm. If it's not an, an assignment like Elephant Man, but um, you know that's the difference. Yeah. And any last word on Adieu Lacan? Adieu Lacan, I think, is really unusual uh, in terms of presenting the psychoanalytic uh, world. And, you know, it takes the patient as, as the lead for it, not the psychoanalyst who always seems to dominate in these things. It's, it's the patient herself who comes to her own victory. In, in the movie, and I think that's important. And Lacan is a fascinating study for people to understand. We have his his uh, his fascination with different cultures. We have his famous Borromean knots in the movie, you know, which which are his main symbol for for psychoanalysis problems. You know, these three interlinked rings that if you cut one, all three of them fall apart. Mm. You know, so. Uh, it, it, it's a beautiful movie, and uh, Valentina Cornelia's cinematography, black and white cinematography, is beautiful. And and Richard's ideas about Lacan and his patients are are important for people to see it. Mm. And what are your memories of the late Harry Dean Stanton and working with him on Wild at Heart? Oh, he was great. He's a very eccentric, religious. You know, he he sang. Mexican folk songs. He loved singing. He spoke fluent Spanish, and uh, and I'll never forget his death scene in Wild at Heart because uh, it was a scene with Grace Zabriskie and Calvin Lockhart and, uh, and myself and and Harry Dean, and uh, when he was about to be assassinated, you know, uh, he was trying to get in the mode and. And David Lynch said to him, you know, you know, Harry, remember that book, the autobiography of a yogi that I gave you to read, you know? And uh, Harry said, yeah, yeah. He said, you know, in there, the Swami talks about 
all different saints, all across all different religions, leaving their bodies. And they just, they just take off into another sphere. Mm-hmm. So I want you to be thinking about that. I want you to be thinking about that right now. And so I'll never forget. It was a great moment to be a part of. Yeah. And one last question. When David Patrick Kelly looks in the mirror, what does he see? Uh, <laughs> well, he sees uh, a, a father, a proud father. You know, I got married 17 years ago to Juliana Francis Kelly, a great actress and playwright. And uh, we have a 13-year-old daughter. And uh, that's my life and my joy. Okay, thank you for calling into our show. Thank you, Prairie. Glad to be here. Bye now. And Adieu Lacan is out now in release. Listening to Arts Express and coming up on the show, there's a new documentary about the heroic undercover Cubans known as the Cuban Five sent to infiltrate Miami's exile community of U.S. recruited terrorists there committing bombings and murders against Cuba. And though there have been numerous films on the subject, this one is from an Irish perspective. The director Gary Lennon phones in from Dublin to talk about his film along with his other productions, Surviving the U.S. Atomic Bombing of Nagasaki and Broken Rings, the untold story of a unique friendship between Ireland and Libya. First, some scenes from Castro's Spies, then filmmaker Gary Lennon. The first resolution I made, it was, if I had to die here, I I would die happy. series of bombings in Havana. Havana's luxury hotels have been hit by a spate of bombings. We were um, a country under siege. Individuals like us were needed in Miami. This was a military operation from day one. You have to lie in order to do that job. And you have to be somebody you are not. If you don't have a strong mind, you get lost. They busted the door. Hey, they say, hey, freeze, freeze, FBI. Uh, it was really brutal. These charges against these individuals allege actions for the Republic of Cuba against the government of the United States. Solo les digo una cosa. It takes a toll on you. It's not easy. But on the other side, you know it's, it's your duty to do it. My conscience is clear, it's clean. If I had to do it, I'd do it again. Are they heroes? No, the answer clearly is no from my perspective. I think they should still be in the United States uh, serving their, their time. Hello, is that Prairie? Yes. Hi, how are you? Good, thanks. This is Gary Lennon here. Welcome to our show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. 
Now, there have been a number of productions about the Cuban Five, including the 2019 dramatic feature, Wasp Network. So what were you going for in bringing something new and different to the table with Castro Spies? Yeah, I grew up always loving spy films. And my main ambition from this, as was the co-director, Ali Asman, was to tell a really entertaining spy film. Um, espionage is a really fascinating world, especially when you live, like myself, as, as a civilian. So, you know, I often live a very quiet, very safe, very mundane life. And, and the life of a spy is, is really extraordinary. And it's full of danger, excitement, adrenaline. And I'm fascinated as to why someone would actually would do that. And um, there have been a number of other publications. There's also been, there's also been a feature film. What I would say is, is that what we tried to do is tell the very complicated story that it is um, as clearly and as uh, easily to follow as, as people, as we could do for an audience. So that, that was our ambition. And I, and I think the other kind of the final big point that we wanted to kind of get across was many times you hear the stories of, of spies that have changed sides. And this, this story is the story of five spies that never changed sides. They, they ended up serving time in prison, but at the end of that, they, their final summation is that if we had to do this again, we would do it all again. So these were the kind of the main ambitions that we wanted to get across. But the overriding one was an entertaining, uh, easily followable uh, spy film. And what was it about the Cuban Five that led you to want to make a documentary about them? Yeah, I think it's safe to say that Cuba is a very uh, polarizing subject, uh, especially more in America than, than it is in Europe. But, but from my perspective, I, I didn't come at this from any, any kind of skin in the game. I wasn't pro or anti-Cuban or pro or anti-American. It was the ability, though, as, as a filmmaker, to have first-hand testimony from the actual people that were in, in this story. I thought they, they, they were extraordinary individuals. Uh, irrespective of your politics. Um, I think, you know, these were the elite of Cuba. You know, these were people that were that fought in the war in Angola against South Africa and their apartheid regime. There were people that stood out among the many hundreds of thousands of students that were there. Um, one of the men there was a heavyweight karate champion. They all, there was a magna cum laude in university. This was a, a very talented Cuban. And... They are, uh, there's a romance to the spy, uh, it just in general, irrespective of what side uh, they're on. So th- these were a couple of the things that were, int- that were interesting to us. And I think it was just the, the fact that they had this ability to do what they did with really tiny, tiny budget. Mm. And, you know, they were going up against the best funded uh, country in the world in, in America. It made, it made for a compelling story, in, in our opinion. And... We also just felt that Cuba itself is a fascinating place. So th- these were the things that drew us to it. And in the course of making this documentary, was there anything that challenged any preconceived notions of yours or most surprised you? I think my last comment there was about money. I was incredibly surprised at how an entire spy network in Florida could be run on something like thirty to $35,000 a year. In the, in the 1990s, which is truly an extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily small number. Um, the, the commitment to their cause is something which is, again, irrespective of your politics, I think you can't but deny that they, that they remained passionate about it. You know, in terms of things that, that, that surprised our preconditions, I, you, know, I you know, I studied history and politics in college. I had a reasonably good handle in, in the broadest sense of, of the story. Um, I suppose I was very surprised at the level of anti-Castro organizations that existed in Florida. Mm. Um, that, that was a surprise to me. And I was also surprised at the scale of the espionage network that the Cubans had in Florida. It, it's a much larger thing than I thought. Um, I thought there was going to be a certain amount of it, but it, but it really is quite large. So you know, they were a couple of things that surprised me. Um, and And... Also, the, the scale of sorry, the, the finances that were involved in the Cubans. Cuba was going through a, a financial crisis at the time. So to have been able to run a spy network of a number of you know, many dozens of agents in, in Florida, 
centred around Miami for something like thirty thirty five thousand dollars a year is mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to believe. But that was that's what they did. When we started the project, we had a, a reasonable grounding in in the background in the history and politics of the area. But I suppose you know some of the things that really surprised us was the scale of the uh, Cuban network that was in uh, in Florida. And um, we were also very surprised at how such a large network could be run on such a tiny budget. Um, and then on the, the counter to that is that we were very surprised at the scale of the different organizations that were based in Florida that were trying to topple Castro. There really is just a dozen, many, many organizations. It's almost like an alphabet soup of acronyms. Uh, and it was just quite surprising, the actual level of these and also the, the level of funding that these organizations were able to to generate in, in Florida. Um, so, so they were some of the big things that surprised us. And did you feel there's anything particular you bring to this subject and these events from an Irish perspective? I think it's reasonable to say that as someone from uh, a colonized country of many hundreds of years, um, I have a nose for colonization. Mm-hmm. I know what it smells like. And I think it's reasonable to say that Cuba, uh, well, factually, it was correct to say that it was a, a colony for, for a number of hundreds of years. And then for the first part of the 20th century, it was a de facto colony. Um, so I think that, that that runs through it, that, you know, that I, did, that I did have that sentiment. I suppose we also have a natural inclination for the underdog as Irish people. Mm. You know, we, we, we would have that. But, but against that... Um, both sides of, of this, this debate, let's say, were very open, and the facts were both backed up by both sides. Both sides were very open as to what they did. Both sides agreed the facts as to what were done. The disagreement came about from the why. So the Cubans, um, the Cuban spies, acted uh, in, from their perspective to protect their government and to protect their country, whereas in the Cubans that were uh, the Cuban exiles that were in Florida, their starting position was that that this was an illegitimate government and also, you know, an intrinsically evil government. So any of their actions were justified. So, you know, when we had both sides talking, neither side was contradicting each other. It was just the starting point as to who was justified. And again, that's your politics that you bring to the table uh, as to which which side you kind of uh, align with. But, but from our perspective, it was really interesting that, that we had this consistency. You know, there wasn't one side saying one thing and another side saying another. It was really just which side was right, you know, and we kind of let the audience bring their own conclusions to that. And right now you're in the middle of quite a traumatic series of events over there with the ongoing European conflict in Ukraine. What can you say about that both personally and politically and its effect in Ireland? Yeah, you know, I think the first, I'm actually currently working at very early stages on a project on this, so I am kind of very much involved in it, uh, in kind of the research of it. But the most practical thing in an Irish perspective is that we're seeing a large amount of Ukrainians come into the country, which is not something I thought I would see in my lifetime. You know, I, I, don't, I think it's fair to say that we thought these days were behind us, but we were very wrong. So the, the, the scale of the conflict, as we see on our screens, is is enormous. And um, so this is this is how practically how we're seeing things. And now we're also then, you know, taking ourselves away from the the politics, and um, and the conflict element of it is that we're actually seeing um, tangible impacts. You know, in terms of things like prices of fuel, prices of food, uh, inflation is rising, and then in terms of the Irish economy, you know, we had uh, quite robust forecasts for this year and next year, and that's all been pulled back by a couple of percentages. So it's no longer a, uh, you know, we've, we've gone from the theory to the very practical. You know, it's already starting to impact us uh, as, as citizens, and then also we're, we're seeing the Ukrainians. I personally live just around the corner from the Ukrainian embassy, so you actually see quite a lot of traffic. Uh, you see a lot of supporters, and then countering against that, I see a lot of anti-Russian protesters outside their embassy which again is not too far from my house. Um, they're the main things. And I think there's just what, what's happened with this conversation is what has happened with the war in Ukraine it is that it has 
just fast-tracked and accelerated any conversation there needs to be about moving towards renewable energy and moving away from dependency on Russian oil and gas. So the, you know, it's no longer a discussion anymore. It's just a question of when. But in terms of the refugees of color there, especially from Africa and the UK, and they're being deported to Africa, even as the Ukrainian refugees are welcome, in effect deported, can you comment on that? Um, I can only comment on what I'm reading in the papers, as I'm not living in the UK. But the, um, certainly the British government under the Tory government of Boris Johnson is trying to embark on a policy of sending its refugees to Rwanda, essentially outsourcing the, the, the refugees. And it would be fair to say that they are treated differently than the Ukrainians are mm. being treated at the moment. Yeah. As an Irishman, I wouldn't be able to comment too much more on it than, than that kind of superficial reading of it, but that's certainly what we're seeing in the, in the news here. Mm. And what can you say about some of your other documentaries and what inspired you to pursue those subjects? A Doctor's Sword, about an Irish doctor who survived the atomic bombing of Nagasaki and was given a samurai sword for the lives he saved. And 70 years later, his family's searching for the origin of their father's sword. Yeah, he was, uh, in a, although I never had the chance to meet Dr. McCarthy, it's reasonable for me to say that he is a hero of mine. He, he lived a truly remarkable life. And he was at some of the biggest events of World War II, from Dunkirk to the fall of Singapore. He was then a POW for a number of years. Um, when you think you couldn't get any worse than three years in a Japanese prison of war camp, he gets brought to Nagasaki. And obviously that was the site of one of the most dramatic events in human history, which was the atomic bomb. Dr. McCarthy was less than 100 metres away from the epicentre of that. Yet still he, he managed to somehow survive. So I'm not sure if Dr. McCarthy is the luckiest man or the unluckiest man in the world, but he was truly uh, an incredible person. And the story of Dr. McCarthy is particularly impressive to me in that even after all of this mistreatment that he suffered at the hands of the Japanese following the bomb, his first reaction was to actually go out and treat the Japanese in, in these makeshift hospitals. So I think that goes to the, the quality of the man. And again, it was, you know, it was as filmmakers, we go for stories, we go for engaging characters that we feel may move our audience. And um, we go for stories that are you know, beyond the ordinary. Um, and Dr. McCarthy was certainly an extraordinary person. Um, you know, and he has that similarity to the spies and the people in, um, in the American Justice Department that captured them. They are people of extraordinary talents and ability. And, and that's very kind of fascinating and captivating for a filmmaker. And what about In League with Gaddafi, about the 1989 Irish athletic trip to Libya as part of a wider study of Irish-Libyan relations? Yeah, I think, you know, as, as I'm 45 at the moment, and the, the Ireland that I grew up in was a very poor country. It was the poorest country in Europe, in Western Europe. Uh, and now we're one of the wealthiest. So in just a very short period of time, we've gone from one side uh, to the other. And that story set in 1989 was when, back in the bad old days, let's call it, you know, it was when Ireland was very financially weak, you know, economically weak. And we had really quite institutionalized corruption by the by the party. Um, the person that was leading the government at the time, the prime minister, has subsequently been found to have had terrible, chronic uh, corruption under his government. So it was it was very much a yarn. You know, it was it was a story that told a couple of big things that came together, which were um, Libyan arms, which provided guns to the IRA. Um, it was the story of football becoming incredibly popular in Ireland for the first time. And it was the interaction between all of those and the corruption of the Irish government, which was seen through this beef deal. So you have these, this triangle of Irish beef being sold in a corrupt reason into Libya. Uh, then the Libyans were then paying the corrupt Irish politicians. And then in the background, they were providing weapons to the IRA. Mm. So in the middle of this, you had a team pretending to be the national Irish team, but was actually made up from a couple of Dublin teams. So it was um, it was a funny throwback to the, to a bygone Ireland, and it also at the same time told some of, had the, it gave us the opportunity to tell some of the more serious subjects, which was the troubles in Northern Ireland, the IRA, 
uh, Colonel Gaddafi providing arms and political corruption. And what would you hope these events in the past conveyed to audiences today or sheds a relevant light on this particular historical moment in time? And I'd like to think that an audience, uh, in particular an American audience, would, would, would watch this with an open mind. Um, I think it, would, it may put into question the embargo against Cuba, uh, which has been going on for a number of years. But irrespective of that, I think it's a story on espionage, this, this world, and also, you know, give some thought into the future of, of Cuban and American relations. Okay, thank you, Gary Lennon, for calling into our show. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. All of that. Bye-bye. And Castro's Spies is out now in release. And we'll go out now with the Arts Express screening room and excerpts from You're Not My Enemy, The Media Is. And the youth observation today, quote, Our Great Depression is Our Lives. As Zeitgeist Productions explores the media, meds, monetizing anger, the outrage industrial complex, Orwell and hedge funds chasing eyeballs, and advertising unhappiness. All I have are negative thoughts. Is it me, or does it seem like everyone is angrier, more depressed, and more medicated than they have ever been before? That stuff plays out. That plays out. If you feel like the world has gotten crazier, you are not alone. There are some numbers to back this up. Suicides have skyrocketed and they are the highest that they have been in decades. Opioid deaths in the U.S. hit a record high in 2021, killing over 100,000 people. Survey research by Pew Research shows that uh, the, the degree to which we feel that the other side is not just, we just don't just dislike them, we strongly dislike them, and we think that they are a threat to the nation. Those numbers have been going up and up, and those are over 50% now. A Pew poll revealed that about half of Republicans and Democrats have few to no friends on the other side of the aisle. And some scholars have said that we haven't been this divided since the Civil War. Families have been broken apart over political views. Everybody's wrapped up in social media conversations. They carry them on over to the dinner table, and. It, it gets people in arguments at work, and all this stuff no one saw coming. So how did it get this bad? Why is everyone so unhappy? The reason is what I call the outrage industrial complex. They are similar to the military industrial complex, but their profits come from keeping you as mad as possible. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being, God damn it! My life has value! This iconic scene is from the movie Network, which is about a struggling news organization that allows its lead anchorman to go on outrageous rants because it boosts their ratings. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. Aaron Sorkin wrote that no predictor of the future, not even Orwell, has ever been as right as Chayefsky was when he wrote Network. It looks like it has been a blueprint. The media wasn't always this way. When lots of consumers started buying radios in the 1920s, the FCC was established and the Radio Act of 1927 was passed. After televisions were invented, this became the Communications Act, which required that television stations gave equal time to all political candidates. In 1949, the Fairness Doctrine was passed, requiring broadcasting stations to provide contrasting viewpoints on controversial issues. For the next several decades, television stations were dominated by the big three networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC. These networks didn't need to compete with each other, and they were seen as staples in American homes. News agencies are always trying to push narratives on people, trying to get people wound up and upset. Uh, and that is a conscious business strategy that we didn't have maybe 30 years ago. You know, you think about Walter Cronkite or what the news was like back in the day, you had the whole 
family sitting around the table and everybody watching. It was sort of a unifying experience to watch the news. Things began to change in the 70s when advanced satellites allowed local TV systems to receive signals from distant broadcast stations. In 1987, the Fairness Doctrine was repealed and was completely abolished in 2011. So according to people, 62% of the coverage that they see is biased. I'm actually surprised it's not higher than 62%. Mm -hmm. Where do you go to actually just get the facts today? MSNBC host Chris Hayes said, at some level, we're wedding DJs, and the wedding DJ's job is to get you on the floor. In essence, news stations need to play the music that their listeners want to hear. Many times, news stations will pass up important stories in order to focus on trivial nonsense. Newspapers have also been complicit in stoking outrage. Over the last 20 years, their business model has changed from being advertisement-based to subscription-based. Nearly 25% of local newspapers died as a result, and many others that survived became ghost papers, meaning that they were bought out by hedge funds that gutted their newsrooms and hired cheap labor or used unpaid contributors to create a content farm full of clickbait articles. Newspapers like the New York Times that were able to successfully transition to a subscription-based business model went the Fox News and MSNBC route by cultivating a hyper-partisan audience. Before the internet, news companies had like a basically free way of, to ma of making money. They dominated distribution. The newspaper was the only thing in town that had a, you know, if you wanted to get a one ad, it had to be through the local newspaper. Now with the internet, the internet is the distribution system. Anybody has access to it, not just the local newspaper. And so the easy money is gone and we have to chase clicks more than we ever had, uh, had to before. We have to chase eyeballs more than we had to. So we've had to build new money-making strategies and, and a lot of it has to do with just sort of monetizing anger and division and all these things. And we just didn't do that before. A former New York Times correspondent has said that they followed a top-down approach instead of a bottom-up approach. Instead of organically chasing stories, reporters needed their stories to fit the narrative, which was a storyline that was mapped out a year in advance. I want the public to see Spider-Man for the two-bit criminal he really is. Spider-Man with his hand in a cookie jar. Whoever brings me that photo gets a job. The news has become nearly indistinguishable from tabloids, and they are actually not even hiding this. Both Fox and MSNBC have been sued for accusations of slander from Tucker Carlson and Rachel Maddow, respectively. They both used variations of the same defense in court by saying that they are not stating actual facts, but instead are stating opinion. Is brought to you by Pfizer. CBS Health Watch, sponsored by Pfizer. Anderson Cooper 360. Brought to you by Pfizer. ABC News Nightline. Brought to you by Pfizer. When people are glued to the TV, they are bombarded with ads that are making them even less happy. The University of Warwick conducted a study comparing survey data on the life satisfaction of 900,000 citizens in 27 European countries from 1980 to 2011. They found an inverse connection between annual ad spending and the satisfaction of citizens. Even accounting for other variables, it was clear that their experiment found that advertising made people unhappy. Advertising has us chasing cars and clothes, working jobs we hate, so we can buy we don't need. Last year, seven in 10 pharma companies spent more on sales and marketing than they did on R&D. They spend billions of dollars each year on direct-to-consumer ads, and antidepressant usage is at record levels in both the US and the EU. It is often debated whether depression is a disease of affluence and whether it comes from a desire to reach higher on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. The middle children of history, man. No purpose or place. We have no great war, no great depression. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. All been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but we won't. We're slowly learning that fact. Social media didn't start the outrage, but it sure as hell poured gasoline on it. While social media can be used for activism, it has also led to a rise in hashtag activism and has exploited the worst impulses of narcissism. This narcissism often kills genuine debate 
replacing it with virtue signaling that divides us even more. If someone could have literally sat in a lab and created the perfect tool for narcissistic people to sit somewhere and get the validation and supply they needed, that tool would have been social media. In the blink of an eye, we entered a universe of influencers and population-wide manipulation, and frankly, a population-wide development of people developing their false selves. Many of us are glued to social media as studies have shown that it is more addictive than cigarettes and alcohol. Likes on social media cause the same brain activity as winning the lottery. Like cocaine, the sense of satisfaction is short-lived and it's not real. It's, it's a slot machine, and, and I mean that technically. So when you pull, it's a, that's a variable ratio reinforcement schedule, if I remember correctly. And it's very addictive because if you pull on the slot machine arm enough, you will win. And you never know which pull will reward you. And so not only is that addictive, it's very hard to extinguish that. As the social dilemma said, we are all living in our own Truman Show. And this has also had an effect on the ideas that we are exposed to. Many people are aware of confirmation bias, but they are not aware that things wouldn't be much different if it were the opposite. In 2017, 1,220 regular Twitter users participated in a study where they followed a bot that retweeted elected officials, media figures, and opinion leaders from the other side. At the end of the experiment, the participants became even more polarized, showing how repugnant both sides have become. It doesn't take Russia to sow discord in our population. We've done a fine job with that ourselves. And thank you, Zeitgeist Channel, analyzing the past, exploring the present, imagining the future. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.